It is a privilege and a humbling thing to stand before you this morning and to read God's Word to you. And I would like to ask God's favor on our time together at this time. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? God, please grant favor on our time of reading your Word and considering your precepts that we might know what pleases you and that we might have great assurance of pardon by the blood of your Son when we don't please you, and that we might be led into a place where we have great assurance of being pleasurous to you for all of eternity, great assurance of eternal life. Please bless the hearers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The word corporate, corporate, it's an adjective describing those who belong to a corporation. Corporate, it's those in a united group, like persons, united in a group. You can say a phrase like, the corporate good. Corporate is united or combined into one. Certainly, Mount Vernon Baptist Church has articles of incorporation, But the sense today is the corporate gathered body of Christ locally doing worship together as an event. The sense is corporate in our prayers or corporate prayers. In a podcast titled Pastor's Talk, the content providers dedicated an entire episode to the subject of corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. In that podcast, they ask questions. They say, things about public prayers. They wonder why they're often casual or short or few. They wonder if it's a problem. They muse on about what might reinvigorate the church's prayer practices and their corporate prayer. Why do churches pray so little, they ask. Is there a pattern of corporate worship that can be developed by reading the Bible, they ask and explain. They address what does public prayer look like in a faithful local church. And then make this stunning statement. The amount of prayer can be tough to get through for those of us not used to it in a corporate worship service. This kind of prayer slows people down and causes us to actively participate. It slows us down and causes us to actively participate. It becomes not an I prayer, but a we prayer when it's a corporate prayer. An aim of this series on learning the language of lament has been to explore corporate prayer. And today is the day that we do that more deeply. We aim to explore corporate prayer and we pray that God would raise up men that would consistently pray the word through corporate prayers in our service. Dedicated deep, devoted, corporate prayers, prayers of praise and confession and petition, pastoral prayers, corporate prayers of lament, and corporate prayers of thanksgiving. We do preach and sing the Word, as we've already done, but in Lamentations chapter 5, we see how to counsel the Word and pray the Word, even corporately. We build the health of God's church by word-based ministries, not trinkets and gizmos and gadgets. 
not self-help. So we reorient as we gather each Sunday when we preach, sing, pray, and counsel the Word. It sounds too basic, but it isn't. It is the prescription for healthy believers in a healthy church. Jeremiah here, the author of Lamentations, helps us conclude Lamentations as a book, as a counselor of the Word, helping people find their voice for corporate prayer. Lamentations provides a great service to the church in each generation. It helps give us a language for loss and a solution for silence, a category for complaints, a framework for feelings, a process to work through our pain. Pastor Mark Vrogop wrote a book that we've used this series that I'll cite from over the course of this sermon, and I have previously. The book's title is Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It has this bluish cover on it, and it's at our bookstall, and I think it would serve you well if you're going through a time of suffering or want to prepare for a time of suffering. I think reading this book would serve you well by Mark Vrogop. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. In that book, Mark describes lament as a prayer of pain that leads to trust. The thematic framework for expressing our grief is turning to God, voicing our concern, asking and then trusting Him to help us. Complaint and regret and remorse alone do not become asking and trusting automatically, but they can with the help of God. We can move from complaint and regret to asking and trusting. And that's part of where corporate prayer comes in as a congregation. Through prayer as a we and not just an I, we find shape to voice our pain, our lament, our petition. We are to be honest before God as we state our faith and petition for help humbly. Humbly. And that's it today, really. That's the way to frame this text and understand it and apply it, I hope, is that you would be honest before God, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. As we state our faith, chapter 5, verse 19, and petition for help humbly, as we humbly petition for help, chapter 5, verse 21. So I'll say it again, if you're taking a, a notes on this, our way of looking at this text would be verses 1 through 18, be honest before God. Remember us, O God. Be honest about the state of affairs. Number two, state your faith. State your faith. Chapter 5, verse 19. And number three, petition for help humbly. Chapter 5, verse 21. Now, beside those three points that I just said, I want you to put another phrase out beside it so that you can tie it to corporate prayer. So, beside be honest before God... I want you to think about how the counselor leads the people to a corporate prayer of confession. So corporate prayer of confession. Or just confession, if you've already got the counselor and the corporate prayer part. And then out beside the second point, stating our faith, chapter 5, verse 19, I want you to see how the counselor leads them to a corporate prayer of praise. Or prayer of praise, or just praise, if you've already got it to this point. And out beside the third point, beyond confession and praise, I want you to see under petition for help humbly, I want you to see how the counselor leads them to a corporate prayer of petition. Now we see these corporate prayers in the life of the church, but we see them grounded in passages like Lamentations 
chapter 5. Without further ado, let's read Lamentations 5. And remember, the first 18 verses stands as a block. Verse 19 and 21 stands alone. And we'll bring it all together at the end, Lord willing. Lamentations 5.1 Remember, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Remember. Verse 2 Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven. With the burning heat of famine, women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned to mourning, the crown has fallen from our head, woe to us, for we, we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick, for these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals pray over, prowl over it. But you, but you, O Lord, you reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless unless you've utterly rejected us. And you remain exceedingly angry with us. And so the book ends, unresolved. Kind of like how we feel when we're in grief, unresolved. The first four chapters follow in orderly fashion around an alphabet poem, an acrostic. Chapter 5 loses all form. All we can say for it is it has 22 stanzas, like the first, second, and fourth chapter. But it loses its form. It's as if the author loses his nerve in this chapter. They do find their voice, though, as a counselor of the people. Jeremiah the prophet preaches for the people and counsels for the people that now have actually received his prophecy, albeit too late to save from consequences. These people are being punished by God through the means of evil Babylon. And they have to wrestle with the fact that this nation of Babylon is being allowed to triumph over them and will be allowed to triumph for 70 years. They're in the thick of it, it's thought during the two-year siege over Jerusalem that Babylon was pelting and punishing and persisting in its punishment of Jerusalem. They're in the middle of it when Jeremiah writes Lamentations, and they are needing to wrestle with how to express their pain, even in the midst of it. So if, if you this morning need and need to express your pain in the midst of it, if you need to deal with some pain you've never dealt with, If you can foresee a pain that is coming, a kind of suffering that's right on the horizon, this text can help you. 
It can help you cope and deal with the realities of life in a broken world. Let's take it on its parts. Let's review verses 1 through 18 for our first point. The counselor leads them to a corporate prayer of confession. Being honest before God, I said. A corporate prayer of confession. There are five imperatives in this passage of chapter 5. Remember, look, and see. Three of them are in verse 1. The other two come at the end for our other points. But remember, look, and see. Remember, remember, remember. Look at us, see us. We are shamed, we're disgraced. And he goes on to describe that disgrace. But pause for a moment at the word remember. Notice that he's leading the people, the us, to address the Lord. Oh, Lord is used in verse 1. It's also used in verses 19 and 21. That's why we framed our points this way. The people's heads have been lifted up just long enough in the midst of their starvation and their embarrassment, and they've looked up and they have found their finding voice to cry out to their Lord. Lord, what's be- look, look at what's befallen us. Look and see. See us. I, I think of the way that the Lord heard the prayers during the time of Moses. They're, it's like they're crying out for a deliverer like that. They're certainly echoing into covenantal history of God's people when they say a word like remember. For God promised to remember Noah when Noah built the ark. And then after the punishing floods, Genesis chapter 9 verses 15 and 16 describe a rainbow and a covenant promise kept using the language of remember. Just listen as I read. You don't need to turn there. I'll just simply read it to you. God remembered Noah, Genesis 8.1 says, and Genesis 9.15 says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds or the rainbow in the clouds is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So that is what a rainbow is meant to describe. It is a symbol of God's relenting grace that he will remember his covenant and he will not destroy the earth with a flood in the manner in which he did during the time of Noah and the ark. I will remember my covenant. Similar language is used in Deuteronomy to describe the way that God remembers his covenant people with their deliverance and the exodus and the law of Moses. So they're asking him to do that which he has been known to do for his people. Remember them. But that is a covenantally difficult prayer to pray when you're in the middle of pain, isn't it? It's, it's difficult to call into mind, to frame into view, that God is going to remember His people, that He will keep covenant. And that's the tension of the book. And frankly, it's the tension of our lives when we're dealing with pain and suffering. Vrogop says it like this, He says, to remember is to ask God to be in his promises, to be who he claims to be. In the midst of disgrace and blame and scorn, bearing reproach, the people were ashamed of what they'd done. Disgrace captures the emotion of something that's hard to talk about. I'm disgraced. It's hard for me to talk about it. Circumstances in your life that are so hard that to even go there with words, well, words just fail you. It's painful. The explanation of the disgrace is found in verses 2 through 18. Let's briefly reflect on it. Verse 2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. So our inheritance of you, gone, it seems. Even our very homes, gone. 
that, that we don't have homes. It's an imagery of a war zone. Uh, we've become like those that we were called to help, right? Religion that the Lord is, is proud of is to the fatherless and the widow and the orphan. We've become like that. We are, we are widows and orphans. We're needy. Verse 4, our basic needs are not met. We have to stumble and stoop just to come up with basic needs. Verse 5, we're pursued while we try to eke out a living here and what's left. They've, Babylon has carted off our strong young men to force slavery, and they've left only the weakest among us. And we all know who dies first in the time of a famine. It's the weakest. So those that were left were having to realize and recognize and reckon with that the elderly were perishing, that their babies were dying. This, the pursuers were at their necks. They're tired. They're weary. This is heavy. Verse 6, we have given the hand to Egypt and to Syria. That was the other perennial superpowers of the time in the 6th century B.C. They've had to give the hand to them to get enough bread. And it says here that their fathers sinned and they've died, or they're dying, and we bear their iniquities. Not to say they're directly punished for the sins of their fathers, but it's hard not to admit that when your fathers live poorly that there aren't ramifications and consequences for that, aren't there? I mean, if, if you have parents that have lived poorly, there's consequences for that. We feel that pain acutely. They simply admit it here. We bear aspects of their iniquity generationally. But they're going to come around to understand it's their own sins that's really got them directly in this predicament. We'll get to that momentarily in verse 16. Look at verse 8. We're slaves of slaves. We, we don't even merit at this point the status of slaves. We are servants to those that are slaves to the Babylons, to the Babylonians. It's, it's, it's petrifying. We, when we need to get bread, it's, it's, we have to risk our lives just to get food. Where Verse 10 talks about, uses language as if you're, you're starving to death. That's that language. There's no safety for the, the little ones. There's no safety for the women. Verse, verse 11, there's mistreatment of women and young women. Verse 12, there's no royalty. There's no infrastructure. There's, there's a complete disintegration of the governing class. There's no respect shown to elders in the community. Nobody's at the city gate. Uh, it, it, it can get worse. It has. It's bad. It's, it, the, 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 when the Lord's hand is removed from their society, the, the results are they're just as nasty as they ever could have thought to have been. Uh, young men that are left and boys, they just stagger trying to get basic needs. Verse 13, verse 14, as already said, the city gate is desolate. This is the place of culture and negotiating and life and vibrancy. You might think of the Proverbs 31 woman in the city gate or the book of Ruth. And you look at here, the young men, their music's gone. Davidic-like music, the harp and the lyre, it's gone. There's nothing to celebrate. Verse 15, the joy of their hearts has ceased. It's like more like a dirge in a funeral than it is dancing in a wedding. Right, dancing being synonymous with a wedding and, and mourning being synonymous with a funeral. Their, their dancing has been turned to mourning. The, the joy of their hearts has ceased. They, they feel like it's moved from if God be for us, who can be against us, to if God be against us, who can be for us. This is the inversion of good times. It's bad times. It's, it's desperate times. It says in verse 16, The crown has fallen from our head. And they admit that this is about their sins. Woe to us. Not blessing, but woe. Woe to us, for we have sinned. They, they are here being led in a corporate prayer of confession with honesty. The counselor, Jeremiah, is leading them in a corporate prayer of confession. Woe to us, we have sinned. We're heartsick, verse 17, you see. 
or heartsick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. Look at verse 17 at the end. Our eyes have grown dim. That's a way of talking about crying our eyes out. We cry till we can cry no more. I watched a documentary on the Armenian genocide of the early 20th century last week, and it described the plight of the Armenian people as they were being deported to certain death from Turkey. And in the description of the deportment, it talked about the point in which those being deported couldn't cry anymore. They cried to the point that they, they didn't, there were no more tears left in the ducks. They, they cried their eyes out. Literally, they cried until they could cry no more. I, I want you to know that no human, no human suffering is lost on a God who reigns. I want you to know that. We do not make sense out of every piece of human suffering in this life. We do not, because we cannot. It's above anything that we can fully understand. I, I don't know why God has not given an ultimate call of accounts yet. We are to pray, as the end of the Bible says, come, Lord Jesus, come. And, and I don't know why he hasn't yet eradicated sin. He would have to eradicate it in every one of us, and all justice would have to be called to account just like that. There would be no more salvation to be had by conversion. Salvation would be for the Lord's people, and the, Lord, the full cup of the Lord's wrath would be leveraged against those that reject Him, and the final, final analysis of things would come. What I do know is that in this epoch, in this period of time in which we live, by which we suffer, and we do, and we have pain, and we have to process, process it, I want you to know that... God gave you tear ducts for a reason, and your tears are not lost on Him. The poetic precision offered by the Psalter in Psalm 56.8 captures it beautifully. You, Lord, have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Every tear. Imagine Him taking every tear that you cry in these painful times and putting them in a bottle and keeping count. I can't perfectly empathize with you. Your neighbor can't, although in covenant membership you're called to attempt it, but he keeps up with every single tear that comes from your eye. Remember is the prayer of confession that we're looking at in verse 1 and verses 1 through 18, but it's a remembering that is rooted in who God is, in his covenant promises. It is a remembering that is grinding out not only a woe is us for we have sinned, but also God is the initiator of redemption for sinful people. The nation has become like a widow. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheek. The nature of any lament and all of grief is somewhat circular. Any grieving person can tell you that it's circular. That you grieve a thing, you think you're over a thing, the thing comes back, you grieve it differently and again, and it's somewhat circular. And I, I think that that is a great piece of wisdom to understand Lamentations. You read Lamentations 5 and you think, haven't I read this before? I mean, I'm showing you how it's different because it's coming out now as a corporate prayer to the Lord. The Lord's name there mentioned those three times with those imperatives. Remember. Right? Restore. You reign. These imperatives are... But, but the content of their suffering looks very similar to chapters 1, 2, 4, and 3. It's interesting, really, when you think of the circular nature of the book, the circularity of the themes of tears and sorrows. It's so important to be able to express sorrow. 
as pressure builds up inside. And the prophet is helping them get their grief out. They're facing crisis in their faith. And it's sad. Something beautiful has been lost, their civilization. People have been lost, their children, their loved ones, their elderly. They're, they're lamenting. And we know, and we, 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 we know in our better moments, the truth of the matter is that He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. But while those tears are adding up and being kept and counted in a bottle, it just hurts sometimes, doesn't it? And I want you to know that every single book in the Bible, every single one of them, is there by God's design for you, including lamentations, including it. It's there to help you cry well. Our tears matter to the Lord. He understands what's going on, even if in His sovereign will He does not immediately fix it. In an interview by Nancy Guthrie, of Pastor Colin Smith. They were discussing lament. And this is how they discussed it. Colin said, I've had people say, thank you for speaking about lament in your church, Pastor. He said, I heard from a lady who'd had two miscarriages. I felt that I had to hold myself together, she said, and that if I were to break down in, in any way, I would not be an example of a good, faithful Christian and really trusting God. Just the simple fact that there's tears on every page of Lamentations helped me. She felt like she was released to not have to live fake when she was in pain. Nancy Guthrie then said, I remember about three months after my daughter Hope died, I went on a retreat with my church. I said to them, I want you to know I'm not losing my faith. I'm not depressed. I'm just so sad. I need time and space to be sad. I think so often what happens in the church when someone has a loss, is people try to fix it, or they don't know how to abide within it. And Nancy says that she thinks that that happens so often in the church, and then, and then members, well-meaning members, will, will say things like this. They'll say, well, how do you think Nancy's doing? And another member will say, well, she was crying last week at service. And sometimes they can interpret that as, well, she must not be doing very well because she was crying. As if there's something wrong or unusual about that. The person was valuable. Her daughter was valuable. The unborn child was valuable. We don't just say it ethereally. We say it because we believe it. Tears don't reflect a lack of faith as much as at times a lack of tears might reflect a lack of faith. Think of tears as a tool that God uses to wash away the deep pain that life in this broken world brings to all of our lives indiscriminately and at times in droves. And Colin said it well. He said, tears are the shuddering of the body at the pain of the soul. The pain in the soul is being released and brought out. That's crying. And as I've already said, God gave us tear ducts for a reason, didn't he? Lest you think it's unmanly, to think this way, ponder the very shortest verse in the Bible found in the 11th chapter of John. It's just two words. You've heard it said, right? At the death of Lazarus, something beautiful and valuable was lost. What did Jesus do? He wept. He cried. But we have to come to God in honesty, not only in our confession of our sins, but our confession of how we feel 
He knows our situation. When we turn to God, something has happened that is helpful in our process of grieving, in our process of embracing the suffering that we have and not pretending that it doesn't exist. Colin said this too, and it really struck me because I didn't think it was true until I meditated on it. I'll share it with you. He said, the hope that is in Lamentations isn't heaven. I thought, how is the hope not heaven? But he was trying to make a strident point, and I think it might help you today. The hope that is in Lamentations isn't heaven. For a grieving person, heaven seems a long, long way. The grieving person needs hope right now. I've forgotten what happiness is. My endurance has perished. This is a language of lament that we need in our prayer lives, and even in our corporate prayer when we gather together, to lament. Hope is the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are made new every morning, Lamentations 3 says. God's grace is sufficient for you today in the midst of your mourning. When you get up tomorrow, God's grace is sufficient, 2 Corinthians says. It's as if, I, it's as if we, could, we could hear God saying, I won't be fixing this for you today, but my grace is sufficient for you this day. He said that even the likes of the Apostle Paul. We are to be led in prayers of confession, and we are to confess with honesty how we feel. Number two, the counselor leads them to corporate prayers of praise. The counselor leads them to corporate prayers of praise. Pray, praise, 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 praise in the midst of pain. Pain is inevitable. I want you to be prepared. It can create scary emotions. It doesn't go away quickly all the time, and lament provides an unusual opportunity for Christians with regard to sharing their faith. All the things happening in the world, when we're able to get to the thing that's underneath the pain, then we can point to restoration. It's part of what Christians are about. We are about holding up the reality that the Bible presents. I like how Jonathan Lehman says it. He says, the Christian's task is to hold up the reality as the Bible presents it and to ask how it compares to what their hearers have been calling reality. The Christian asks if all the promises that sin has been making to them have turned out to be true. How is that working out for you? It's the thing underneath the thing. It compares. That was last week's sermon, but it's apt here. The Christian shows the hearer that the Bible is, in fact, a better interpreter of their experience. And then the Christian points them to the warnings and the promises that it personally makes to them. Doing this well means that the Christian must understand what the hearers believe, the way they think and interpret the world. Their false understanding of the world. The goal is to confront those beliefs, not generally, but precisely, from worldview to social status to spiritual state. And in order to do that, the Christian has to embrace the emotion of lament. We need to develop the category, the language of lament in the church. Not that we're just a sort of saps, but my goodness, real life is filled with emotion. Jesus wept and you should too. We've learned in this series that to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. We've learned in this series, grace is only amazing because judgment is real. We've learned that to lament is not to be without faith, that waiting is not a waste, that brokenness that leads to God is not wasted, and that hope springs from truth rehearsed. That's the second point. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. When we gather together and we offer a corporate prayer of praise, Essentially, what we're doing is reminding ourselves of God's attributes. We're praising Him for who He is. You know why? 
because he's not like us. And that's really good for you. God is not like you, so when you praise him for who he is, what you are reminded of is that he is in process of making you more like him. So as you gaze at not only the lawgiver, but the love giver, as you gaze at him, what you find is the cross-section of every hope that you ever needed to have. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. Focus on the sovereign rule of God over all things because negative circumstances around you begin to develop a story that may be false. You might draw the conclusion that life is out of control, that it's chaotic. But chapter 5 tells us in verse 19 that he reigns. And if he reigns, and if salvation belongs to the Lord, then your life cannot be lived in a world that is chaotic and out of control, no matter how the circumstances seem to feel. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. This is where what you need when you are pivoting in your pain from the malaise of raw tears to the, the minuscule hope that comes when we rehearse the truth of who God is. I love the way that one pastor put it. He said he, that when we acknowledge that the center of the center of the universe is God during our suffering, it reminds us that, that we are not the center of the center of the universe. When you rehearse the truth about who God is through prayers of praise, praising God, adoration of God, before even confession and thanksgiving and petitioning God, when you remind yourself of who He is, you're reminding yourself that He's in control of your life and that you are not, and that you are not the center of the universe, but God is. It, how helpful is that for you when you're going through a difficult time? It's, it's not up to you to get out of the pit. It's not up to you to fix everything around you. It's, it's not up to you. You don't have to, in some stoic, philosophical manner, downplay and deny the pain of a situation. You can live in the pain and lament to God, and He reigns, and He is not only big enough to take it, but He promises to be with you all the days of your life until you dwell in His house forever. This matters when you see the hard things in life. Somehow in the midst of His kind grace, we feel Him in the midst of our pain. I trust that you're in control of this and I'm not, God. That's when Christianity starts to come alive for people. That's when we have evangelistic opportunities that we didn't think we'd have. So, is there anything in your life today in which you might need to pray, the Lord reigns? As one pastor put it, do you find yourself abandoned or depressed, exhausted or desperate, assaulted, ashamed? Has some part of your life been leveled in some way to where the crutches have been knocked out from underneath your feet and you feel your need for God acutely? You can say, God, I'm, you fill in the blank with any of those descriptive words. I'm this, but you reign forever. This is my verse 1 through 18 of Lamentations 5. I'm abandoned, depressed, exhausted, desperate, assaulted, ashamed. God, I'm blank, but you reign. I'm blank, but you reign. And you can beautifully rest in God's reign, even when your city, your family, your life has been leveled. 
I love the way Heath Thomas, the president of Oklahoma Baptist University, talks about preaching the book of Lamentations. He says, don't be afraid of what looks like ambiguity. Give space for people to be people and to cry out to God in prayer. He said, knowing the reason why my wife miscarried by itself doesn't help me deal with the loss. In Lamentations, they know why they are experiencing what they are. The question is, how do I navigate this? Psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. They already knew why. Look at the longest book of the Bible. The prophet Jeremiah had told them why. Now they need to know how. That's why one, two, and four chapters begin with aha, how, 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 how. And then it goes on with this, this alphabet poem, this acrostic, except for five, which kind of falls apart into this, this short corporate prayer of trying to find voice. But Thomas, I think he puts us on a good trail. He says, in Lamentations, they know why they're experiencing what they are. The question is, how do I navigate this psychologically, emotionally, spiritually? And Lamentations provides a framework, if you'll let it, for you to navigate the whole of humanity before a holy and reigning God. It's messy, but instead of trying to fix it, lament, lament leaves raw nerves out there and puts it to the Lord. How long, O Lord? Please help. These are repeated phrases in the Bible and in this text. These words connect with all of us if we're honest and if we find humility. Scripture gives way for us to deal with these realities in prayer, and prayer centers us in God. The first and best response is not action but prayer, because prayer centers us in the will of God. Prayer says, I'm a sinful human being in need of a holy and majestic God. And the reality of God in Christ is that His kingdom will come amidst all the brokenness in this world. He's going to come riding in, and He's going to fix things. But you can't always trust how things seem when you're in your pain. And that's why we need the prayer and pain that leads to trust. That's why we need corporate prayers of confession and praise to not only be honest before God, but also to refocus us that utopia is not now, that he still reigns. It's not an indictment on him, but I'm trusting him by faith what will one, come, one day come by sight. The lamentation includes things that are strongly felt, but not always accurate with regard to long-term reality. It's, it's like a funeral in a dirge. It's painful and we cry and we don't, we don't, sometimes we're saying things about how we feel and it's not framed in light of his eternal reign. And so we need that reminder. Consider the new covenant in Christ's blood and consider verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 19 through 22. 2 Corinthians 1, 19 through 22. I'll, I'll read that to you and consider how this flows with what we're talking about. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Notice Paul's writing in light of his own affliction. Sometimes he thought he was not going to make it. And he says here in this verse, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You see that? that? That's why we pray. How do you end your prayers? Amen. Verse 21, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and God who has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us the, his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Isn't that great to have the spirit in you as a guarantee? And that spirit bears witness of the truths of God and grants assurance of eternal life even as we find words and utterances in the midst of our pain. 
we have prayer of confession and praise, we thirdly, after we've stated our faith, we thirdly need to be led into corporate prayers of petition. Humility, petitioning God, but always with humility. Always considering prayers of lament. The tone of a repentant person is exhibited here. This is not a prideful person. Listen to how Lamentations 5, 21 sounds and explore how it feels. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Twice the word shuv, restore, is used. In places it's translated as repent. Here, rightly, restore. A sense of renewal is expressed in this verse. As we near the end of Lamentations, the next to last verse, there is this prayer to God. Restore us. First to himself, otherwise they can't be restored. It's not even first of all to fix our fix our buildings, although they thought that would come, I'm sure. Restore us to you. It's like David said, after he sinned so egregiously, against you, O God, have I sinned. It wasn't just that they'd sinned against God, but that was first and foremost who they'd sinned against. They'd sinned against the Lord. Restore us to yourself, O Lord. The people have been exceedingly humbled. They don't know how it's going to work out. And here they are confessing their sins. Woe, we've sinned. Woe to us, we've sinned. Here they are uh, reminding themselves of who God is and praising Him for His reign. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And now they're uttering this prayer of petition together. They're being led by, by Jeremiah to do so. Please restore us that we may be restored. We can't restore ourselves, but you can restore us. After 70 years, the exile would end. Chronologically, 500 years from Abraham to Moses and 500 years from Moses to David and 500 years from David to exile and, you know, 500 years from exile to whom? Christ. We have to read Jeremiah and Lamentations in light of the New Covenant. In fact, Jeremiah talked about the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 where there would be a day when the covenant would be written on our hearts, the law would be written on our hearts, that we would have, to put it in 2 Corinthians parlance, the, the Spirit would bear witness in us and would, would help us with our amens. It would help us with our prayers. Help us understand that God is a promise keeper. Do you believe that? You don't always have to feel good in order to claim the truth and to rehearse the truth that God will keep His promises. Should city and state fail around you? Should marriage not work out like it should? Should job not change and develop as it could? He reigns and he'll keep his promise. He'll keep his promise to get you all the way home. Do you know that? That's so important. You can have hope now through praying together, but you can have hope forever. And that's what we slowly lean into. Consider how Christ's promises come true, even though grief is never neat and tidy. Consider Revelation 21, 1 to 8. What a passage of Scripture for those of us that just need to be reminded of His ultimate restoration, even if it seemed to come late for these people. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, right? Not a destroyed Jerusalem, but a new Jerusalem, coming down from, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
So she's not a widow anymore, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We're not separate from him. It's not how long. There he is. He's going to dwell with his people with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And all those tears have been counted up in the bottle. He's going to wipe every one of them away from your eyes. There's not going to be anything, no death to cry about. There won't be mourning anymore. There's not going to be any more tears to count. Pain is no more. The former order of things, the brokenness of the world, will have passed away when Christ returns to consummate his kingdom. Verse 5 says, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down. Told John the Revelator, Write this down for the book of Revelation. For all of us, we can read it in perpetuity. For God's word is firm. His promises are true. He said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and they are true. And he said of these true words, It must be rehearsed because hope springs from truth rehearsed. Verse 6 says, And he said, I am, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water from the spring of the water of life without payment. Those of you that are starving and thirsty, I'm going to give you water. To one who conquers, you're going to have this inheritance. And I will be his God. He will be my son. It's important to remember who God is in times of pain because you're becoming like him. But verse 8 is a sober warning for those unbelievers. Listen, cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Your portion will be in the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It is such a, such a necessary thing when we're talking about expressing grief and pain. It's such a necessary thing for me to remind you that the hope that springs from truth when it's rehearsed is only for the believer. It's not for unbelievers who deny God, mock God, and rob Him of the glory that is due His name. That's not to say that you're going to earn your privilege into heaven by living a good enough life now. That's not what I'm saying. It is to say that the fruit of a repentant life is humility, it's honesty, and it's clinging to the truths about God by faith before they come by sight. And you have no reason for hope outside of belief in Christ for your salvation. Revelation 21.8 is for you, not Revelation 21.1-7. In fact, Lamentations chapter 5, verse 22 is, you, is for you, not Lamentations 5, 21. Listen to how this book ends unresolved, albeit, but it all finds its resolution in Christ. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 21 says, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that may we be restored. Renew our days as of old. And then, unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. God remains exceedingly angry with folks that exceedingly deny him. But God has no anger remaining for those of you who confess your sin and believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. All of his wrath has been laid on his son Jesus Christ at the cross. There are questions raised in the Old Testament that are not answered until the New. To answer the final question in Lamentations, you need to roll the Bible forward. The Counselor took flesh Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, and he gives an answer to the final question in Revelation. Will you stay exceedingly angry with us? Will you be angry forever? And God answered those questions by sending his son. And he abides with us in our pain and in our suffering. I'd like for you to consider our time in the in-between 
the goodness of the resurrection and the pain of the cross and the lament of death, I'd like for you to consider Jesus' words from the cross. It's Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 50. Jesus is suffering the likes of which we can relate, but not directly. We're not hanging on a cross right now, but we certainly can relate to pain, suffering. And here's how he gives voice for us to pain. He says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is a direct quotation of Psalm 22.1, which Brother Jonas read earlier in the service. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talk about solidarity with the prayer of the people in 586 B.C. in Lamentations. Have you, why do you forsake us? Why have you forgotten us? God, why do you, if Jesus can pray that from the cross, then surely we can pray, God, why do I feel forsaken? Why do I feel forgotten? Listen to how this goes for Jesus because his pain is only alleviated by his death and then his resurrection. And some of our pain is only ultimately alleviated that way. It's why we need the language of lament to help us through. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. In the darkest time of Jesus' life, he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? It's okay for us to cry out with prayers and pain, but they lead us to trust. When we come together every Sunday, we offer prayers of confession, and we want to do it in an increasingly effectual manner together as you're being called to do it, to read Scripture and pray the Scripture, to pray the Word, to preach the Word, sing the Word and counsel the Word. We want to have our corporate prayers impacted by prayers of praise and prayers of raw petition before God. Would you help us? Because we certainly need it. And I want to invite you into the kingdom this morning by telling you that the only way in is through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted him, your pain will be utterly meaningless because it will not be recapitulated in the narrative that is Christ. It'll be your own pain, judging for your own sin, and resultant from your own wrath that's deserved to you by a righteous God. But all you have to do to know the peace that passes understanding is humbly submit yourself to the one who has already given so much for you. For while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we sing, may we sing as people of faith. As we pray, may we pray as people of faith. As we hear the word, may we respond as people of faith. As we prepare next week even to take your supper and experience baptism, may we experience those visible symbols as people of faith. As we go through this life needing language to help us, may we be people that lament forward and see with increasingly clear vision like the martyrs that one day every single tear will not only be accounted for, but it will be atoned for through Christ's blood. Amen.